There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 126, Phil. Is that right? 125. Shit. You blew One, it. 125. We'll keep it in because this is uh, this is real. It's like reality. Rally TV. We got a good show for you today. We got Miles Nolte, director of fishing from One Meat Eater. Say hi, Miles. Hello. And then uh, Philip the Engineer. I'm here. It's still here. Okay, sounds he sounds excited. I'm feeling pretty good right now. I'm feeling like the world's opening back up, like a gentle flower does in springtime. And um, you like that? You like does that make you feel good, Miles? He's Phil doesn't like it. He's shaking his it's, head no. I mean, you know, it's it's a little trite, but it's working. <sighs> yep, that's the title of my autobiography. A little trite, <laughs> but it's work. Uh, we got a great show for you today. We got Shane Mahoney, Woo-hoo. the great conservationist uh, from Conservation Visions, also uh, the founder and main driver of uh, something you'll hear about soon called the Wild Harvest Initiative, which is tracking uh, meat, wild meat consumption and its impact economically, culturally, and all the other ways it is significant to our society. So you'll hear a lot from Shane Mahoney coming up. Um, he put me in a trance with his beautiful... Man, Tones. I'm gonna say I was just gonna say I could listen to that guy talk about absolutely anything all day. I don't I'd like care. To, yeah, continue. He could I be like, talking about crochet or cross stitch or, or I mean, I'm sure there's a difference between those two. I don't know it, but if he was explaining it to me, I could probably learn the difference between crochet and cross stitch because I would want to hear it from him. Anything. He was on fire today. He was on fire. So you're gonna you're gonna hear him in rare form. Uh, he did text me. Uh, later, and let me pull up and read some of the text. I hope that's okay with you, Shane, if you're listening. Um, I didn't get, get this year prior, but he sent me some like motivational text, and he said, um, 
are you sure that was a keeper? Referring to our interview. And I was like, yeah, I thought it was great. And he said, if it wasn't legendary, then is it worth it? (laughs) 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 I said, I think it was. I think it was worth it, of course. And he said, no. I think it was great, but we can go further. Break comfort zones, rattle establishments. Also, you refer to me as a legend. Right or wrong, you've set the bar. (laughs) So... Hopefully, you all believe that this interview you're about to hear a little bit later on is legendary. I think it is. We've talked about a lot of things. We'll cover some of those here in this in this opening segment. But um, I'm looking forward to that. I, as Miles said, I always like just kind of picking up his energy, getting his insights. I told him you know, further in that text conversation that he just kind of re-energizes me in terms of how I see the world and, and again and pushing me to rattle establishments and go go further into these issues, um, I will I will take that up and and drive harder each time. So thanks thanks to Shane for that, and I'm looking forward to it. But before we get to all of that, Phil, you want to keep going on the pooping in the woods thing, or you want to let that let that fall? Uh, do you have any new developments? Any new emails that you found pertinent or? Well, Miles, have you been tracking Phil's first proof in the woods story? I've, I have. I'm, I'm aware of it. Um, yeah, yeah. You and I shared on the podcast during the daily quarantine cast uh, a rather intimate pooping story. That <laughs> <laughs> that um, you have to go back and listen to that. We're not going to share it again. You're not getting that gold, that magic again. It can only nope. be told one time, and then we must put it away. But we got a lot of emails about the poop story. And there's nothing I can do. I don't want to leave the listeners hanging. Phil's first crap seems to be seems to have captivated the nation. Um, how do you feel about that, Phil? I was going to ask that same question. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just cl- glad I can be like a great kind of. I don't know what's equalizer is not the right word, but I'm just bringing people together. You know, you're not alone, um, and I found out that I'm not alone. So that's it's comforting. It's just it, yeah, it's good. Many dogs eat human feces, as we've learned, and many people are realizing through Phil, as we talked about last week and the week prior, that, wow, I haven't ever crapped in the woods. I didn't know that. I hadn't thought about that. Not me, personally, but most of the emailers are saying they've had a revelatory moment, thanks to Phil, that they, too, had never crapped in the woods before. And so, I'd like to say there's a 10% increase in crap in the woods as we speak. (laughs) So I, there's no way for me to know that. Uh, we will probably use some of the extra budget we have here to commission a report. But until that time, we just have emails. And one such email came from Jeremy Aaron. Uh, it is entitled Pooping for Survival. And he it's a long email, but um, he wrote this not probably, having yet heard your actual story. He said, uh, a quick message for Phil. Disregard all the external pressure to take your first deuce outdoors. Much like feeling the warm embrace of a good woman for the first time, it will happen when the time is right. So he didn't know that. He didn't know that you had taken your crap. But he he goes on to talk about his time in what is called the SERE school, or Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And that they would send their folks on a field exercise with no toilet paper. He says this, uh, they, they send them out. They say, go survive on an approved list of items. Nary, a toilet paper is on the list. He says, um, for some, this is not an issue. 
The stress of the course can cause the bowels of many to stop up quicker than your old pal Steve going off topic in an interview. For the and you know, as an aside, THC has become a safe place to rip on Ranella at this point. Uh, Steve, like Phil, do you feel like that's good for our jobs, or should we stop doing that? Uh, I, I I would say stop, please. I quite I quite enjoy my job. Yeah, me too. Maybe we should, you know, Steve Ranella being the great, probably the greatest living hunter would understand <laughs> the need for comedy. Oh, uh, um, you know, also you know, just a good looking guy, full head of hair. Oh, uh, uh, I mean, beautiful children, beautiful family. <laughs> Hot tub, pool, whatever. I mean, at least two cars. Um, <laughs> um, wonderful dude. Anyway, uh, Aaron or Jeremy continues on. For others, nature still calls, calls whether you're being hunted by the steely-eyed cadre or not. So one has to take a crap, but you have no TP. What to do? The instructors advise against using foliage for shit tickets. Too many poisonous plants have been used before. Socks are crucial for feet, so that's a no-go. They forbid us from using the camo pants and blouse they give us. So, naturally, undershirts fall victim to our bodily functions. Knives come out, shirts are cut, and buttholes are cleaned. This method actually provides a good indicator of who had to crap in the woods and how much. When we get back to base and turn in our issued gear, you'll see many students missing a sleeve off their t-shirt. I, myself, have turned my shirt into a tank top. And then there was one student in my class missing both sleeves and was now wearing a crop top that stopped just below his nipples. <laughs> <laughs> that, my friend, is an inordinate amount of crapping. But hey, you do what you got to do. We in I the service... <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, please finish. We in the service, no sacrifices will be made by <clears throat> use, but the, recruit, the recruiter never told us our undershirts would be sacrificed as well. So, Phil, should you go on a hike and forget your shit tickets, remember this hot tip. I'm going to build on that. I got another hot tip for uh, for Phil or the listeners or whoever cares. This is uh, specific to certain areas. It's very helpful where we happen to live. It's not going to help you out everywhere. But river rocks are a very, very good tool for cleaning yourself up. And and obviously, the the in an optimal situation, there actually is a river and yeah. a water source there. That That's even better. But where we live, river rocks are spread far, far, far from any water source. You can find them all over the place. The key is they're very smooth, but they have a lot of surface area. So they're not going to they're not gonna injure you. There are any sharp points that you're going to do damage to yourself on, but they tend to be pretty well pocked, have a lot of surface area, do a great job of cleaning you up, and no chance of, uh, you know, poison ivy or any other mistake in terms of picking foliage that's yeah, my hot just, tip for the day you want to choose choose the ones that are closest that have just been covered in water they've just the the water has receded or has expelled them somehow and they've been a little slick mm-hmm. johnny vincent talked about this a couple of weeks ago so oh that, well that's uh as one of the many things he does but uh agreed agreed phil how you feeling about that email they, they keep coming in I just thought that one was particularly well done. Oh, it's good. The rocks, the shirts, it's enlightening. I'll make sure to wear some cheap disposable t-shirts every time I get out there now. I mean, I do have a gear idea for THC now. It was just a crop top nipple shirt. <laughs> or like maybe... A, my, or just my, one. It's one that has like perforated lines on it. So you yeah, can so just, you just cut right yourself right some squares. Yeah, That's a good yeah. idea. 
Oh, like it has, yeah, it has, and it could have, uh, look like three ply, like have like a nice Charmin cushiony mm-hmm. look to it. Yeah. All right. It'll, maybe say we'll my, start... it'll say my shitty THC shirt on it. And then, yeah, that's good. I mean, that's another way to keep, <laughs> keep our jobs. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to leave that behind. Um, please, if you haven't listened to Miles and I's shit story, go back into the quarantine cast and, and, and look for that because it's a necessary function of our relationship. Um, we got, we got here, this is one that I, like, I, I hesitate to even read it because I don't know, I have bird feeders, but I don't know much about the subject, but I will read it because I think it's interesting. Uh, David Reed writes in, uh, hi Ben, I know this may be a little out of your expertise, but I know how much you love ethics questions and smiley face emoji or whatever. Uh, are bird feeders ethical? Are we artificially propping up? A population that couldn't sustain itself without 40% of America having bird feeders? Is it okay to artificially prop up a population to make up for all the other ill effects we have had on their populations? Love your show, David Reed. Um, Miles, what do you think, buddy? Have you ever thought about this before? uh, I have not thought about that in in that particular context. The way I've always wondered about bird feeders as being an unnatural food source has to do with predators. In the yeah. sense of like, at least uh, I will admit this. My mother, my mother likes cats. Okay, I'm sorry, Cal, but oh, it's I true. Know. I was gonna say we need Callahan for this. Uh, <laughs> but my my mom eventually got rid of her bird feeder because she felt so guilty at the number of songbirds that her cats would just pick off because they would lie in ambush beneath or near that bird feeder, right? And the the seed falls to the ground and the birds go down after it. And that cat would just be all over him. I mean, just just pounce. So so I think in that sense, you know, if there are cats around, bird feeders can be a little bit of a problem. Um, I, but it, it, in terms, of the, I don't want to I don't want to skimp on the actual question here because I think it's an interesting one. I'd have to do a little bit more research. But yeah. having really no actual valid scientific information, I would say I think it's fine. Yeah. Birds need food. They got a long That's way true. to go. David's right. I, the, in my research, 40% of Americans make bird feeding at their homes a regular habit. Um, so that's, you know, four out of ten of us are rocking that. I have some bird feeders. I haven't thought about this. Um, I grew up around my, my parents always had hummingbird feeders and, and various specific bird feeders on our porch. So it just became a way. Um, you know, as you would imagine, with any unnatural food source, they, you know, all the research I did, they have contributed to outbreaks. Well, lots of, of different viruses and diseases. House finch eye disease is one of them. Don't ask me to explain what that is. It sounds interesting. Um, there's other things in terms of migration patterns and winter migration that are interrupted due to this. So I, I imagine that any unnatural food source changes behavior patterns um, mostly in a negative way other than keeping birds alive that otherwise wouldn't have any food. Um and so the other, I, I went in search of some tips for David, even though I don't even know why we're talking about this on this show, but I just felt compelled to help David out. Um, safe bird feeding includes uh, completely scrubbing out your bird feeder 10% of like a couple times a year with 10% non-chlorinated bleach solution. That'll help keep that bacteria out of there. Um, re- research the favorite seed for the bird you want to get in there that way you don't attract a bunch of different species much like a hummingbird feeder just kind of attracts a hummingbird 
and then look at feeder styles, where to hang them, what to do with them. Be logical about that, but think twice. As our good friend Cal would probably say, um, a lot of songbirds are, are dying from the plague of the feline variety, <laughs> as Miles explained. So if I have, if Phil, if you have a Cal soundbite about cats, could you put that in right here? <laughs> do we have one? It shouldn't be too hard to find one. He's been, it's been a, a hot topic on his podcast. If you've how, does been he listening. Not, how does he not get more hate over there at Cal's Week and Review for being anti-cat? Cat People love cats. They love Cal too. It's, That's you know, true. It's, yeah, they're, it's willing to, they're willing to overlook that because they're they're just so fond of him. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's fine. We'll move on from that. Uh, like I said, I don't I really have a whole lot other than I wanted to help David out. He he seemed desperate to know. Um, this is one that uh, this this next email and our last email of this little segment will be one that I think Miles can definitely comment on because we produce our own shows. He produces Das Boat uh, along with. Can we talk about the ice ice tour here? Is that We've already breaking? talked about it on the Mediator podcast, so I think we're safe here. I think we're safe here. Uh, hey, shout out to Steve Rinella. Great guy. One, Great guy. One of my favorite, favorite people in the world. Really classy uh, dresser as well. Have you noticed that? I mean, yeah. Snappy. He's, he's really a trendsetter. Those hoodies, same pair of pants, four days a week. It's great. It's good. Um, what do we do in terms of filming television programs during COVID-19? Scott Nesbitt wrote in, and he... He got this question in his mind after listening to my conversation with Donnie Vincent. He says, certain hunting celebrities on social media seem to be taking liberties with their quote-unquote job to travel to states to hunt, claiming it is quote-unquote work. An example of this is blank. We won't say your name. She has traveled from Florida. He certainly did. She has traveled from Florida to Georgia to Kansas to Wyoming to Montana chasing turkeys. I am only familiar with Montana travel restrictions as we plan to be chasing turkeys ourselves again this year in the great state. So I made a comment to her, which I later deleted for various reasons, probably a good call, asking if she followed the 14-day quarantine in Montana. She stated it was a suggestion and it, needed, and it ended April 25th, which was incorrect as the governor extended it. But anyway, she also said she was exempt because of the work exemption and she was social, social distancing in her camper. What, com- what kind of image is this portraying for the hunting community as a whole, along with a ton of other questions? Scott, um, Miles, you want to talk about how we're kind of handling it or how you're handling it or how we're trying to make this all work? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that this is a, a valid concern and question, and I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to use this opportunity to burn anybody or attack anybody. I, I think all I can do is speak for what we're doing. And we are keeping pretty close to home. We're not leaving the state. We're following social distancing. We're driving separately when we go out and do these things. But I also understand that it's it's very, very difficult and very, very complicated to try and have any kind of a hunting or fishing lifestyle at this point unless you're really fortunate and you have opportunities out your back door, which I do. So I count myself in a very, very narrow percentage of people who are really, really, really lucky. Um the turkey I killed this year, uh, I was at the desk back at work by 8.30 that morning because I didn't go very far from home. All the fishing I've been doing has been within an hour or so of home. So I, I think that everybody's got to figure out what makes the most sense for them and and what they can live with and feel good about. Uh, but I also think that 
we do have somewhat of a responsibility. I personally think that we have a responsibility to stay as close to home as we can and not expose anybody unnecessarily. Yeah. We've talked about that. We talked about it with Michael Hunsucker during the quarantine cast where he was out running around as these kind of restrictions were starting to take shape and there was a lot of unknowns. Um, Miles has been running for us at TheMediator.com. He's been running our COVID-19 changes and restrictions page, um, updating, even really updating that, if not daily, a couple times a week, right? Yeah, I mean, anytime anything comes through. So lately there hasn't been a lot of news. No one's made any major changes in about a week at the state level. But for a while there, it was multiple times a day that we were having to update that. Yeah, lots of fluidity in the situation, which makes it even more confusing as to what, what you really do. And, and again, this unnamed you know TV show host, social media person there that Scott mentioned, a, it's hard. That's her, her living, uh, supposedly, and, and from all intents and purposes. And she's in a camper driving around, so it's it's hard. But as as Joe Cimelli wrote in a piece for us, you know, just don't you have to understand the, the responsibility to the hunting community, to the angling community. You don't want to be the one to cause cause trouble. You don't want to be the one um, to be spreading this virus around and be the example made by some politician to 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 restrict access to anything. And, and yes, we may kind of be as you mentioned, Miles, coming out of this to some extent where there is light at the end of the tunnel. But we don't know that for sure. It could be a train. We might be screwed. So um, we still have to just follow those those principles. I think the best advice I can give to all hunters and anglers out there who are itching to get out and are itching to do any travel particularly is before you go anywhere or do anything, check in with the management agency where you're going and see what they're asking you to do, see what they're recommending and follow those recommendations to the letter. It's, it's, as you were saying, Ben, it's really fluid. These things are changing very quickly. We can't even keep up with it. I'm, I'm spending more of my time than I, I, I would like to trying to run down what's changing where, but it's, it's very region, region specific and all of it is, is different day to day. So if you're going to go anywhere, you want to hunt or fish, just check in with the the management agency responsible for that area and, and see what they recommend. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the the most respectful way to do it. People have asked, a lot of people have written in on over a dozen emails of, of people asking these questions like, what do I do? How do I approach this? Is there a way, a best practice way to go hunt and fish? And um, part of me wants to say, sure, here's exactly what to do. But most of the time, I'm like, hey, in general, social distancing check the rules and regulations, make that phone call that Miles just mentioned. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of unknowns. And so we at Meat Eater, all of us have been kind of erring on the side of caution and been been doing things in a way that um, we hope reflects best on our community and, and that we care about others. And beyond that, it's hard to say. So, Phil, take us home with this very serious topic. Give us your uh, expert opinion, please. Yeah, sounds good, Ben. Thanks, brother. All right, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Phil, 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 the engineer always comes through. He's like, like he just, God, it's like a comfort blanket you are over there. Um, <laughs> that's <kind> right. <laughs> <laughs> love you, buddy. I love you so much. Uh, he can't even throw things at you anymore because we're not even in the same room. It's he's unfair, got a baseball man. in his hand. I <laughs> see that he wants to throw he's that. He's gripping you right it now. so hard. Yep. 
Randy Johnson over there. Uh, is that a? Do people know who that is anymore? The big unit. Oh hell yeah! A, I, I grew up a Mariners fan, so speaking you're speaking my language now, Ben. A Mariners fan. <laughs> I can't even remember. Where did you even grow up, Phil? I don't even. I haven't uh, put that in my memory bank. I don't. Well, I don't want to. I know grew up in Washington deeply. State, a little city called Vancouver. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I know. I probably knew that at some point. Um. Anybody remember the exploding pigeon? If oh. you don't. Oh, go yeah. on YouTube. Do yourself a favor right now, all of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Go on YouTube and look up Randy Johnson, Exploding Pigeon. I'm sure you'll find it. Yeah, I mean, there is no way to avoid... That's why the internet was created, to preserve things like that. I mean... <laughs> also, fact, while, it was Randy Johnson. <laughs> yeah, and while you're at it, check out the video of Fabio getting hit by a bird when he's on a roller coaster. That one's also good. <laughs> <laughs> There's the... Yeah, can we just list things that you have to see? David after dentist. Uh, who knows what else oh, that's that you need too. to see? Um, all right. Well, we got to we got a very serious. We got to get serious because Shane Mahoney's coming up, mm. and we need to start. Miles, you need to really turn up the voice, man. You need to start giving us some soft, sweet tones to get us ready for old Shane Mahoney. Oh, I mean, it's it's hard to lay the groundwork for uh, hard to lay the tracks for a train. It's going to roll that smoothly and, and penetrate that deeply into your ear holes. But, uh, you know, I, I'm sure Shane has all kinds of interesting things to say. He always does, and I'm looking forward to it. Oh, it's, it, you know, like I said, it is, um, it's a great one. No, nothing can, can overhype it, I think, because he just, just hearing him work through some of the things we all, often talk about in the show is, is, is extremely valuable. But before we get to that, there's a couple things I want to touch on, help kind of set up a lot of what we talked about here. Um, a lot of emails on this subject. I'm trying to work this out in my own head. So I appreciate the help, Miles, and of course, Phil. Um, at what point during the apocalypse do game laws go out the door? Like, at what point in the breakdown of society do we begin to get rid of our ideals around game laws? I think that this is a flawed question to start with. Let me just let me just throw this out because I think, and and maybe I'm wrong, but I think anybody who's asking this question is just looking for an excuse to break game laws. Like anybody who's 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 digging through this and like, when do I get to go out and shoot that animal that I'm not allowed to shoot right now? Like yeah. I think that you were at this point. The fact that your brain goes there tells me that you already want to do this. And that you're hoping or maybe just wondering how the excuse is going to present itself. So to me, the question in and of itself, it, it, it's not okay. It's problematic. It, it, it says some things that aren't that great. All right. Well, um, we're going to go ahead and read the list of email names who've written this exact question. Uh, it's going to take about 45 minutes for me to read all their names and to damn them. You know, I will say this, Miles, though, as I've thought in the in the past about hunting ethics and and Fishing ethics the same. Um, we there's something in us, not all of us, but the the ma- vast majority of us that like when the gloves come off, in terms of like feral hogs or these ideas that I mean I lived in Texas for a long time, I've never seen someone sadly shooting pigs from a helicopter with an AR-15. <laughs> <laughs> so I just I, th- there's something about this where you know we're so constrained and. Sometimes people want to kind of let that loose. Now that may be apples to oranges to the exact question, but I uh, but I think that's what's kind of poking at people here. 
and also that supply chains are are an issue for um, you know store store bought meat and and other supplies of meat. So all that together kind of mixes together and becomes this weird question that so many people are asking. They're phrasing it in a lot of different ways, but I think what they're getting at is what I just asked. So it's interesting to think of, that's for sure. See, and and maybe I just think negatively about humanity. I'm a cynical bastard, which is very possible. But it makes me think of the fact that out my out my window of my office, just about any time I can look out into an aspen grove out there and see deer. And sometimes there are some really nice bucks that walk within 20 yards of my back deck that I could very easily kill with a bow. It would be terribly illegal for me to do that, right? For so many reasons. One, that's not my land. Two, I'm within city limits. You can't kill those deer. Three, it's probably not in season. But do I stand out on that deck and think about putting an arrow through those bucks when they walk by? Yes, I absolutely do. Right. And, and I think many people have had a similar experience going through mammoth hot springs in Yellowstone and looking at the size of some of those bull elk that wander around and wondering, man, what if I was allowed to shoot one of those? Right. And so I think that experiences like this one give you a moment to ponder, like, when, when does that thread snap? When is it actually okay for me to do those things that I've kind of guiltily fantasized about for years now? Yeah. Yeah, for me, like it's it's that idea of supply chains. Like as I we were talking with Jesse Griffiths last week, and we've talked about this on the podcast a good a good bit about the you know the length of supply chains. Shane mentions this in in the interview you're about to hear, like how long we've allowed our supply chains to get, and a part of uh, hunting and gardening and the local war movement is kind of shortening that supply chain, so there's less links to break, right? And hunting is the ultimate way to to do that, and in terms of, of you know Shane Mahoney and his where he is with the North American model of wildlife conservation, which of course we talk about a lot in this because he was one of the first, I guess you could call, he was one of the originators of the idea, then the the first person to really popularize it and market it to state game agencies is that there there's upholding of the public trust within that model, and these we have these governmental agencies that are proxy managers of our own supply chain the supply chain of wild animals and wild places and things where we can get our food. Um, And so we have to kind of maintain the idea of that public trust and the idea of those governmental agencies kind of upholding our supply chain, which is the health of our wildlife populations and fisheries, things like that. So I, the answer to that question, like what point during the apocalypse do we just start shooting shit? You know, not until... There is not until the government falls, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, let's get real. Let's get real uh, sci-fi on you, but not until there isn't a, a game agency to weigh in on the situation. You have to localize game management and, and turn back into a more tribal system. Not until that, and that's a long ways off. Hopefully, uh, yeah. I just feel like an idiot talking like this, but that's that's the question a lot of people are are asking. No, I know. I know that we keep getting that question. We get it to a lot of different channels, uh, all and often. And and again, I I could be just terrible human, but my sense is that it's more rooted in that covetous desire that I was describing than any real sense of like, man, this is coming. But is it possible that we could get to a point where game management agencies no longer exist because the government has shuttered? Yeah. 
that is possible that we're not anywhere near that. And I don't foresee that coming anytime soon. So I don't think, I think we're jumping ahead in the conversation pretty far. I think the next step in the conversation would really be like, Hey, as all these people start thinking more about their meat supply chain and worrying about it, how many more people are going to get into hunting next fall? And, and do we need to think about how many tags we allocated as a result of that potential increase in participation? That to me would be the next logical conversation, but it's not nearly as no. sexy or interesting or salacious as when do I get to shoot anything? <laughs> yes. And I, you know, I haven't, I haven't thought about this way, but I there will be so much chatter about this that I've kind of forced myself to, 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 to travel here. Um, you know, and if you if you read uh, World War Z or watched the movie, um, there's a you know there's a quote in there. I'm sure I'll butcher it, but in terms of you don't see these things coming until they're here. You know, you don't see it. You you don't sit around waiting for a pandemic, but it hits you in, until it hits you in the face. And so there is some in terms of um, this exploration. There's some value. But thanks everybody for writing in. Miles thinks you're all insane. <laughs> <laughs> not insane selfish uh, bastards I, I think you're just like me you're you're actually a selfish evil human and you mask it because you want to be a good person deep, deep. Phil you seem despondent yeah are you okay I'm doing great no I'm just soaking it in oh cool <laughs> pretty sure he's just bored with everything we have to say right now yeah I always ask <laughs> Phil to grade the show when we're done I don't know. The look on your face that you just had while Miles and I were talking was one of complete disgust and just, <laughs> why, how did I get here in my life? No, my mind was wandering. Um, but what, uh, what are you thinking about, man? Just open up. <laughs> don't. It's a safe place. You're in the trust tree. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I just think I'm just thinking about you know. I still got, I got to finish. I got to catch up on Better Call Saul. That's it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know a, what would be more interesting than this conversation? <laughs> anything, on television. anything on television. No, listen, no. I I know I know when to open my mouth I and mean, when to when to keep it shut. It's when I have no I'm completely out of my uh my uh you know, what I have knowledge to talk about. And this is one of those topics. I was just listening. Got it. Yeah, and I then mean, calls you're... me out and makes me look like a fool. Well I no, won't stand for it anymore. <laughs> Finally, we've broken you. <laughs> this aggression <laughs> will not stand, man. Yes, exactly. Come on, man. Uh, all right. Well, you know, to, to the point you were making, Miles, to uh, completely leave Phil back out of the conversation, to, to return to our two-person um, conversation here, there's been a rise in hunting numbers. Um, they're not firm numbers. We don't really we, – we don't – there's not – not enough time has passed here in the spring season for us to really dive into what all this means – but it's a little more than anecdotes. Um, you know, a couple of things that I know you and I have talked about this a little bit, but there's a 60% rise in turkey permit sales from late March through early May um, in the state of New York, which is one of the hardest hit states with COVID-19. And, that, and that's huge. Over That 60% increase is over that same five-week period from last year. That's, that's big time. Um, big time numbers. Thousands of more turkey hunters in the woods. Indiana saw a 28% jump in turkey license sales during the first week of the season. Turkey hunter numbers in wildlife management areas in Georgia increased 47% this year from 2019. Um, that doesn't paint a full picture. doesn't even come close. It's a tiny corner of it. But I haven't seen any data. 
or anything to suggest that that this that doesn't signify the overall trend. You you agree with that, Miles? Yeah, I think I've seen some some other data that show there's less travel hunting going on. So who knows how this all shakes out, right? We're 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 too too early to say. But I think I think initially and anecdotally we can say that there are more people interested in hunting close to home and fewer people who are able to travel to hunt and how that balances out is going to be interesting. I think it, it would be logical to suggest that those high population areas that you're talking about, those states like New York and Pennsylvania and New Jersey might see serious spikes in hunting because A, people are worried about where their food might be coming from and B, the people who normally may have gone somewhere else to do their hunting all of a sudden are staying home. It'll be interesting to see how it impacts places that are more destination hunts uh, out west, for example, because uh, I really don't think we have enough to go off of there. Yeah. There was a concern, you know, and I probably a very valid concern from Montana FWP that, you know, non-resident applications would go way down during this time because the, the application season ended for elk and deer right in the middle of like the height of our, you know, pandemic and lockdown and, and our economy collapsing. So that's that was a huge concern for them, you know, that, that application part of it. But then I know the increase in resident hunting or hunting licenses. And as you say, Miles, there's no way to know if there are brand new hunters or hunters that just hadn't bought a license in a couple of years or it was just more resident hunters buying licenses and less non-resident hunters and how that mix came to be. Um, but we're certainly starting to come into some line of sight as to what's happening here. And it seems like... Um, as it would be obvious, that dynamic is changing, and it's changing for the positive in terms of the number of people buying licenses and going hunting overall. Um, and so it's interesting. We talked a little bit, you know, I asked this question to, to Shane Mahoney in terms of, I've read other reports, this is way less, way less uh, data-driven, but that veganism is on the rise. So there was two reports that came out that talked about that in some surveys with folks. So, like, the idea of veganism is on the rise, consumption of plant-based meat is on the rise, and hunting, transversely, or conversely, is on the rise as well. So, what do you make of all that? We talked to Shane about that, but I'd love to hear, Miles, what you think. Uh, I'm going to guess Shane and I have similar perspectives, but I would say I think people are more and more interested in understanding better where their food comes from and having and being knowledgeable about the the journey that their food goes on from wherever it started to when they eat it. And I think most of the vegans that I've ever talked to are very, very thoughtful about what they consume and how they consume it and what its impacts are. Um, I think that's true for a lot of hunters as well. And probably for a lot of the new hunters who are coming in, maybe because they're not so secure in our food systems at this point. They recognize that they're not infallible. Not that we've seen any, no one's starving as a result of food shortage at this point. Let's be really clear about that. And they're, from what I can tell, that's not on the horizon. But I think it's got people considering more closely how their food gets from starting point to consumption. Uh, and so to me, veganism and hunting would be parallel sort of opposite sides of the same coin there, to use a trite phrase. There you go, Ben. Me too. Okay. Um, but they, they're not that far off. I think that those are much closer than just sort of the, the zombie-like consumption of whatever falls in front of you because someone put it there. Yeah. 
there's a lot of things. I, I've said this before, and we've talked about this, and I think it's an important idea that this this pandemic, while awful, and you know it hasn't touched everybody, but it's touched most of us in some way. Um, it's very much a bridge to some of this, you know, these other conversations about apocalyptic times or you know society really crumbling. It's it's just like a a relatively not in terms of the deaths, but in terms of what we're talking about here. Um, supply chains and the structure of our society and the fragility of those things. Uh, in terms of this, it's a bridge. It's, it's letting us kind of feel some of that fear, connect with it, but also still be able to get toilet paper if we need it, but also see some empty shelves and feel that tinge of, of fear and anxiety that, while real, isn't exactly as impactful as it might seem at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, there's been an uptick of people watching pandemic movies on Netflix and other places. I read a report on that. Um, and I think people will watch those movies now and they feel a little extra. You know, the heart beats a little bit harder. They see some parallels to, to what we've seen during this. And it's just, like I said, it's just the proximity feels a little bit closer to those realities. Um, Phil, please, please weigh in. Have you... <laughs> He's shaking his head, telling me to go away. Um, serious question, Phil. If you have your if your family seen anything different uh, over there, as far as like how you consume or what you're worried about, you talked about with your wife. Uh, you know, no, because just like Miles said, there hasn't. I mean, at least from where we are, there hasn't really been a noticeable change in um kind of what's on the store shelves or um or anything like that i mean you know there was that crazy toilet paper lysol wipe shortage when this first started but that's you know every time i've gone to the grocery store i haven't you know there's always chicken there's always beef there's always pork there's all you know i i haven't i haven't seen a completely empty shelf of of steaks and been like oh i should go hunting um that you know <laughs> Back to the, what was your number 2.5 3.5 <laughs> It was two point five. It's That's no. Right. I, I I would also like to. I'm going to update my score. Quick aside here. It's it's. A, I'm at a four now. I'm. Oh. I, yeah. Now oh, I've been hearing. I've been hearing doubled. all these turkey hunting stories, and I I I'm I'm I'm, fe- I'm feeling the pull a little bit harder. Uh, all right. All right. Okay. Maybe by the time we get you out there, it'll be like you'll be at least be at a five. Yeah. We'll see about half, that. Which is. Uh, but no, I mean, I haven't. The the the, the chain of um of consumption has not really been altered or broken, at least in my household yet. No. Yeah. I mean, I, was I think right you will. Sorry, Ben. I, I think you'll, I think we can pull you well over into the five range, probably beyond if, if, if I could serve you some of the Turkey breast I made this weekend off of, uh, off of specifically off of Cal's recommendation. I'm going to be honest, uh, use the brine out of the media cookbook and, and a couple tips from Cal on trussing it and smoking it. Mm. My only, my only regret is that I can't travel out of my district to kill more turkeys because uh, I made the mistake of feeding some of it to my son and then it was all gone and I'm going to run out of turkey in like five minutes. It's really <laughs> bumming me out. So yeah. I'm just saying, Phil, if you could get a hold of some of that, I think it might put you over the top. Uh, you know, I'm willing to be a participant in this experiment. Yeah, I got it. And there's so many so many failures I've had this this spring in terms of turkeys and taking Phil and and I must admit, I mean, we should we should do a not so sharp moment on just my like the last two months of my life in terms of getting outside and doing things that are actually productive in terms of bringing home meat. 
Um, but that's for another show. Hopefully another time. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, Steve here. I want to talk about something crucial for any outdoor enthusiast, which is battery reliability. I've got interstate batteries powering my gear. I have interstate batteries in my camper. I run an interstate battery in my boats. I use interstate batteries because the last thing I want is to be left powerless. Interstate batteries isn't just another battery company. They are outrageously dependable. In Alaska, the boat dealer that we use for getting stuff and repairs, he uses interstate. Whether you're gearing up for hunting season, planning your next RV trip, or getting your boat ready, Interstate has the battery for all your needs. With over 150,000 dealer locations, the power you need is always nearby. Interstate batteries aren't just about power. It's about being prepared for any situation. Don't let a dead battery ruin your adventure. Head over to interstatebatteries.com, use their store locator, and equip yourself with a battery that won't let you down. When you're out in the wild or just on your daily commute, an interstate battery is your key to a dependable journey. Miles, I, I got one last thing before we get to Shane Mahoney. Um, I asked him this question. It was kind of an in-the-moment question during the conversation. So in the context of the conversation, I think it made sense, and he handled it well, and we went through it, and it was productive. But then on the back end, I'm like, does this even make any sense? Um, and you'll be the person that will be, you'll be like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> You're always the best at telling me when things are completely off. Um, the question is simply this. Is hunting and angling, put that in a bucket, hunting Thank and you. angling, selfish, selfless, or both? First First part I'm, of I'm not. I'm not throwing the question out entirely. As I, I don't immediately look at that and be like, "That's a waste of time." Why am I even thinking about this? Screw you, Ben, for making me cogent, you know, even even contemplate it. But uh, no, there's there's something interesting there. I think it's probably more selfish. I, my experience with it is definitely more selfish than selfless. That's my opinion. I don't think I, I can't think of a way I could frame the thousands and thousands of hours I've spent out 
fishing and, and also hunting and say, yeah, that was a real selfless act I did there. I, I really made other people's lives better and contributed to the greater good of the universe. I did not. I enriched my own experience. I, I learned a lot. I had a great time. Um, I ate pretty well, but I can't, I can't look at that time and say, man, I am, I should be celebrated. They will sing songs about me in perpetuity for all the good I did out hunting and fishing. Yeah. Um, I think that's most everyone's answer, uh, that you would pose this to, but then you get into the realm of like, we talk about conservation and, and how we're able to set up our systems especially our model of conservation is, is is pertinent to Shane's conversation here um, to kind of provide value for the greater good. We're always talking about Pittman Robertson and always talking about uh, the value to wildlife populations, and the money we spend is. So I think we at least pose some of it as selfless, even if it's like a secondary, an underlayer of selflessness that just is, is everyone. Anytime someone challenges the selfish part, we're like, hey, but check this out. We got it. Uh, so that's, I like to break it down for that reason because I think a lot of non hunters would love to hear us kind of just go on and on about this. You, you know, I agree with you on that. And, and, but I, I think that the fact that it is a secondary justification that we use <laughs> undermines any sense of selflessness that's there. And don't get me wrong, you know, my opinion on the model of conservation that we're talking about. And I, I think it's incredibly valuable. And, I think it's a wonderful byproduct and a great system that has been built around the selfishness of hunters and anglers to use that to fund mm -hmm. conservation. But I don't think we get to stand up and be like, yeah, we did that. Because I don't know anybody, myself included, who got into it. Because you know what the best way to fund conservation is? It's by going hunting and fishing. I don't know anybody who got into it that way. It's something nice that we get to claim, and it's a wonderful system that's been built to to use the power and the drive of our selfishness and and convert that into positive outcomes. But I don't think we get to, to call ourselves selfless. Yeah, see, now you sound like Shane Mahoney. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> a little preview, what's to come? No, I, like, what, if we're being honest and we're not in a defensive posture... That's what we would all say, I think. I think that's a very reasonable way to put it. But when we get put in this defensive posture, what do you do? You kill wildlife. Why, 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 why? And we ask that question here quite a lot. Um, I think we, in a more defensive moment, say, like, look at the value that we bring. Look at the selflessness of our act. And sometimes that's a mistake um, that we get kind of sometimes lured into in those arguments. Okay, Phil, do you, as a non-hunter, do you enjoy watching us... Uh, flail about with these with these questions well I, I i do i think these these questions are important and what separate i think a lot of what meat eater as a company does from other stuff that's out there and uh i it's been an absolute pleasure being just kind of a fly on the wall for all of it that is very earnest response from me and uh <laughs> i hope you continue to have these conversations thank you philip t engineer you really build us up Sometimes you break us down, but mostly you build us up. Um, I was, I will admit to be, as you, as we get closer, we inch closer to our time with Shane Mahoney, I was sitting around on Saturday night uh, at a campsite near the Madison River. Uh, I had had roughly five tangerine white claws, and I was on my second watermelon. Uh, <laughs> so fruity. 
so delicious. Um, please sponsor us. Title sponsor by White Call, please. As an aside, but I was feeling, I was feeling like very reflective, and philosophical, sitting by the campfire, just thinking about you know some of the stuff that's that's boiled up over the time here with the pandemic, and so that's why I was like, oh, if I talk to Shane Mahoney, we're gonna go straight, just no nothing tangible, all philosophical questions, see what we can figure out, and it, and it was a joy um, to do it. So that's where we're gonna get right now. Before we go, Miles, um, can we let out the secret fishing podcast that I just said already? Uh, I guess that too late now. Um, I cannot tell you when the fishing podcast will actually exist. I cannot tell you what it's going to be called. I can tell you that myself and our senior fishing editor and good buddy of mine, Joe Cermelli, are digging in and working really hard on creating a fishing podcast that's worthy of being in the media network and that won't suck. So this is like, I, I can tell everybody out there that we are, we are in the lab on it and it's coming yeah. along, but I can't tell you when it's going to exist in the world. The beginning of that was like a Dr. Seuss thing. I cannot tell you what it's called <laughs> <laughs> or if it will exist at all. <laughs> I cannot tell I, you I in do, a house. Do you have an 18 month old? So I read a lot of Dr. Seuss and it might be coming through. I also, uh, I also, for those of you who have kids will recognize this. Uh, I've, realize that I've almost completely stopped speaking in contractions because my kid is so into the elephant and piggy series of oh, books yeah. right now and they don't have any contractions anywhere in there and I find that bleeding over into all of my conversations all the time it's very weird I hate those books I hate them <laughs> it's not even oh, like, I like those are the, honestly those are some of my favorites as far quiet as Phil those are, <laughs> those are awful books no, no, there, there are so, so many worse, worse uh, options out there. I'm with Maybe. Phil on this one. I'm with Phil. They, I think they're, they're some of the better ones out there. I just don't. I mean, it's just every he breaks his trunk. Like, get a life, <laughs> yeah, you dumb elephant, stupid <laughs> elephant. Come, on, I'm, I'm gonna push back here because they're, they're children books that break the fourth wall. Like for those of us who are writers and like to think about weird yeah. stuff like that, they yeah, actually address fun. the reader directly. How cool is that? Yeah, but you know he breaks his trunk, so fuck it. Like, you know, come up with a better narrative. Stupid pig just standing <laughs> around. He doesn't know what's going on. Doesn't he break his nose too, or something in the end? Anyway, um, no listener that has anybody in the twenty-five to like thirty-four. What are people talking about? Uh, if you've not read, uh, what's it called? Piggy and Elephant or some shit? Yeah, what's I believe it it's Elephant and Piggy. That's fine. That's totally fine. Don't read it uh, or read it to your kids, whatever. I don't care anymore. Um, all right. <laughs> and on to the legend. I'm going to keep calling him a legend because I believe it, um, even though that, that might bother him a little bit. I'm, I believe he's brought so much to the world of hunting and conservation and just forward thinking about this and and like i said he's an inspiration to me um if i get lucky one day i can call him a mentor beautiful beard beautiful voice beautiful man that is shane mahoney coming right at you enjoy okay shane mahoney we did it we made uh we're, we're recording i believe can you hear me yes i can yes i can just to go a little bit behind the scenes for the listener we just spent you're gracious enough to spend almost an hour with me trying to figure out some technical difficulties. So I must begin the podcast by saying thank you so much for hanging in there with us. 
Oh, you're most welcome. Glad to do it. We'll blame it all on Phil, if that's okay with you. It Phil is, the, actually. Yes, that's it's fine. fine with me. Phil the engineer. We will lay it at his feet, and he'll have to deal with the backlash. Uh, yep. and that's that's just okay. Um, well, how's everything where you are in Newfoundland? Uh, well, it's pretty good, you know. Uh, just like everybody everywhere else, we're learning to live with a kind of a, a bit of a changed reality. And I think like most people... Um, wondering where this is going to lead, how much change will be left behind, and how much will we recover back towards the normal circumstances that we had previous to this pandemic. Yeah, what's, what has your daily um, life been? I know we were speaking um, the other day just about how you know, your travel has been cut off. Um, a lot of things are changing. What, what's the day-to-day been like there for you? Well, it's not hard to stay busy, so it's, um, that hasn't changed. Um, you know, in some ways, the travel has been supplanted or replaced by, you know, virtual meetings and discussions that way over the long distance, so to speak. Um, and to some extent, there have been advantages, uh, more time to reflect, more time to think. I don't miss the travel, I don't miss the airports, I don't miss the hotels, I don't miss any of that anyway. It's necessary, but um, it's not altogether pleasurable. So uh, I'd have to say on balance there are positives and negatives associated with this, um, which is perhaps an attitude that we're all going to have to take because no matter how optimistic one might be about a return to, in quotation marks, normal, Uh, The uh, COVID-19 pandemic has proven we live in a global world and the patchwork of different responses that will come out will mean that uh, we will not go all the way back to what we had before. But the future might be better. Who knows? Yeah, Yeah. no, that's true. This certainly has been, as I've said on the show before, kind of a slow-moving tragedy where we've been able to you know, see things change in real time and experience kind of those cultural and social shifts as we all try to deal with this together. You know, I know now there's been many, many conspiracy theories. There was a video called Plandemic that came out that, that swept the internet and then it was removed from, from YouTube and Vimeo talking about, um, you know, the government's role in COVID. Um, but there's also been a lot of positive thoughts and, and you know, but I've been able to see kind of people reacting to this in real time. What's been your thoughts about what you've seen um, in terms of their reaction? Well, you know, there always exists a significant difference of opinion amongst people in the world about almost anything. Um, we're all products of our upbringing and products of our learning, pro- products of our life experience. So. Naturally, as any political leader will tell you, um, there's always a diversity of opinion almost on any policy, any happening. When you see something that strikes at a global level, um, that strikes the issue of human security, health, and life, um, it is inevitable that a lot of people will develop very different uh, understandings, approaches, and interest in it. Some people will dismiss it. Some people will overreact to it. Some people will look for a conspiracy theory. 
Some people will try to find what the realistic source of the problem has been. And I think what probably most people will not think about too much is the fact that uh, the pageant of human history has been a series of new narratives that come along periodically. Uh, there are a lot of little small narratives, small changes that accumulate. And every so often there is something of a very large scale that forces us to examine almost everything. And the COVID-19 is one of those because it has political implications, social implications, economic implications, cultural implications, ecological implications, and human health implications. And that's only in the context of what we now know. There is nothing that rules out the possibility of resurgences or changes in this particular virus, uh, nor new viruses in the future. It's not uh, as though this is the first time a major disease problem has confronted a large part of humanity. It's one of the few times, of course, that it's confronted everyone. But, you know, we have had diseases like smallpox and the bubonic plague and things of this nature, which uh, in previous times affected a great many people, killed hundreds of millions of people in the case of the plague. Um, and which disrupted human society very fundamentally. So it's too early to say what the full extent of this problem is going to be. But um, in any dimension of our lives, do we really expect in the near future for us to gather in groups of 80 or 100,000 people packed close together to watch extraordinary athletes perform, for example, or things of this nature? Um, you know, every single one of the numbers that we listen to is someone's mother, someone's son, someone's brother, someone's grandfather. And it's easy enough as we get into the debate of where it came from and who caused it and why did it happen to sort of uh, forget the number of people who have already died. And it's particularly saddening, I think, to see the number of elderly people in, you know, old age homes or care facilities who at that stage of their lives are so vulnerable and yet they disproportionately, certainly here in Canada and I think in other parts of the world, sure. have disproportionately died. So it's a, I think it's a time for reflection, Ben. I agree. I agree. As, as you kind of I think I, I, as I was th thinking about talking to you, I really want to get into that reflection. Um, you know, what can the past tell us about where we are now? And then, you know, where might we go? Because as you said, this is such a wide reaching and deep um, issue in our world. But is there anything, you know, just more to the here and now, is there anything over the last couple of months as we've moved through this that has shocked you, that has taken you back? Um you know, I know that, as you said, there's a lot of horrors in this. Um, is there something that you just that you think you'll remember for the rest of your days that's happened, or has it more been just a general malaise of change? No, I mean, I think for me, um, you know, I have long held the view that uh, that any current reality is extraordinarily vulnerable. You know, each of us in our own individual lives, I believe, is one heartbeat away from 
some small disaster potentially, a new disease that we acquire ourselves or some terrible accident that befalls uh, someone close to us or something of this nature. So, you know, at a philosophical level, uh, I think what has struck me most is the rapidity with which our world can fundamentally change. Now, this particular virus um, has its pattern. Um, it has greatest impact in those who are more vulnerable. Um, and it is spread in the way that it is. Um, it could have been far worse. It could have been a virus that was completely lethal to everyone who, who uh, you know, acquired it. It could be something that, you know, can live on a countertop or on a piece of clothing for six months rather than just a few hours or a couple of days. And yet, even with what we have, you know, we have seen uh, massive intrusions into the economics of our planet. We have seen massive intrusions into how we will think about healthcare in the future. Um, there are open questions about where major industries will fall as a result of this, such as the airline industry and so on. And we have to remember that before March, at least in the United States and Canada, this wasn't really considered to be an issue. This is only May. And all of these changes have taken place. And so I guess that makes you reflect on the fragility of any system that you have. And it's affecting every country from the most powerful in the world to, to, to the least powerful in the world. And it is a leveler in the sense that it doesn't matter if you are wealthy or poor, uh, of one race or another, of one religion or another, uh, this virus has the capacity to, to impact us. So, um, you know, I dream of a more reflective world anyway. So maybe that's one of the, yeah. <laughs> one of the slight benefits in not to make light of it. Yeah, no, I, for sure. I mean, I think we, we've said this a lot. Of, like, I think this is, we're into the 20 something shows that since we've been locked down and uh, essentially sheltered in place here. And, and that's what I've done a lot is reflect. And as I was thinking, again, as I said a little bit ago, thinking about talking to you, I knew, you know, I could pose some very difficult existential questions that that I think a lot of us are either hinting at in our daily lives or fully immersed in. And and one of those is the reflection of, of the natural world and, and what this means. Um, it's a zoonotic disease, so it went from animals to humans, of course, as most everyone knows now. Um, we'll find out more about that, I'm sure, in the future as we know more about the disease. But my reflection, we're, we're hearing terms, I'm hearing terms on the news in terms of uh, the human race, like herd immunity and things that I've, I've heard in, in, a, in wildlife biology and wildlife circles for years, but now you're hearing those things pop up. So it makes me reflect on how this virus is, is allowing us to see our own connections to the natural world and, and those of us that don't spend time outdoors, of course we do. Um, how have you reflected on that? How, is this, how has this changed how our society would, would treat its relationship with the natural world, knowing that that's you know, where this disease essentially came from? Well, I think the first um, thing we have to realize is that what COVID-19 and this virus demonstrates to us is how closely related we are 
to the others that exist on this planet that are non-human. The reason we are able to contract these diseases, the reason that these viruses are able to work within our systems, to take over our systems, to invade our cells and, you know, do the things that viruses do, is because of the fact that we share a tremendous amount of engineering, uh, genetic makeup, uh, with these other wild things that live, and not only wild, but even domestic things that live on this planet. You know my personal views, uh, a lot of people do. I don't really see much difference between human beings and other species. I just believe we're different, all of us. And I believe the first thing that COVID tells us is that we are so very little different that we can acquire from them these viruses and, and, and our bodies can work with them, so to speak, uh, uh, to ill effect. I think the other thing is that people, of course, will develop attitudes towards the natural world, assuming, as we are, that this virus probably originated uh, in bats and then got translated somehow to, to human beings, potentially through wet markets or other spaces. This joins a long list of other viruses and bacteria that can come from animals and invade us. Um, and uh, naturally, some people will react in a way that says we must displace ourselves from all contact with nature uh, and wild things and wild animals. You know, they're kind of diseased, they're kind of vermin, etc. And there will be other people who will look at this and say that uh, as long as we separate ourselves from the primary source, a wet market in a distant country or something of this nature, and rely more fundamentally on the foods and systems we have closer to us, that we will be, you know, better off. I mean, I think that the, the, the truth of the matter is that um, um, we will all look at this crisis from our own particular lens. There will be a category of people who will try to make use of it, to take advantage of it. Mm. So, for example, some people who say, you know, we should never use animals at all. Uh, will say, you see, this is, this is a reason you, sh you shouldn't do it. It's not just that it's reprehensible that animals are used by human beings, but it's also, you know, it causes pandemics in, 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 and therefore human beings should not do this kind of thing. You'll have other people who will reflect on it and say, no, um, I have been engaging in the use of animals for a long period of time. And what this convinces me of even more than before is the fact that my reliance on them in my local environment, in Montana or in Newfoundland or wherever it might be, is a safeguard against these kinds of tragedies. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think, as I said, a crises like these bring out the, they sort of, they, they, they sort of draw out from people uh, the diversity of opinion and expression uh, that exists in humanity. And the implications for the natural world could be very severe. Right now, a lot of people are saying, you know, it's because we have this interaction with wild things that these problems are happening. Well, one comment I would make on that particular viewpoint is that human beings, when have we ever not been relying on wild things and other animals? 
That is no change. There's absolutely no change in the world about that. As a matter of fact, from, for millions of years in previous forms and ancestries, we have been interacting with killing and consuming all manner of animals. There are still hunts for bats species, for example, in other parts of the world where people consume them. Why not? They're, a, they're, a, they're an animal that can be eaten. Um, what has really changed, of course, is the Malthusian principle. We have so many of us on the planet, humans that is, right now, and our vig vigility, which means our, our capacity to move, uh, has just been exponentially changed by technologies. Trains, planes, boats, cars. Yeah. So something that happens way over there somewhere is all of a sudden on our doorstep and in our homes and in our nursing homes and in our hospitals and in our restaurants and in our nightclubs and bars and pubs and so on and so forth. So one other thing that we you know, should be reflecting on is the fact that so many of us moving so rapidly around this planet uh, will have implications, some of them very positive, some of them we will view as progressive, as an advance of civilization. Others of them will prove to be incredibly difficult for human beings. No species, as Malthus said, no species increases forever to these astronomical numbers as we have without bizarre implications emerging. So I, I, I think there's all of that. And I think the other thing I would say about our reflections on nature here is nobody is thinking about, you know, it, other issues like habitat loss and climate change and all of those kinds of things which are going to also change and move the interface between human beings and wild things. Um, and as we move into a warmer world, we are going to see many things that are unpredictable. Yeah. This year alone, 2020, we've had massive locust swarms in, in East Africa, major uh, bushfire you know, catastrophes in, in Australia at unprecedented proportions. We've had massive floods in Indonesia, uh, and we've had this pandemic. I mean, there's a lot going on. And in the natural world, if you believe anything about nature, nothing is disconnected. Yeah, that's a great, you know, one thing I, I want to hit on that point, but I do want to return to something that you mentioned, because I think it's very important about perspectives here. Um, I've read, I've been reading a lot of articles tracking trends during this short, relatively short period of time, roughly a, two months or a month and a half. Uh, there's, there's a report from uh, a company called Markets and Markets that finds that plant-based meat will probably grow uh, and veganism will probably grow because of the pandemic um, substantially over the next the next year, year and a half, two years. There's also many reports that hunting participation is up over the last, oh, you know, four weeks, early spring season numbers out of Georgia, um, out of Colorado, out of a bunch of states that are putting out early projections on hunting license sales and participation across the board, that, that that is also going up. And so as I read that, it just denotes what you were saying a, a bit ago, that it you know, people are taking their own perspective and kind of amplifying it in these times. How do you, how do you see those trends? Is there one, something, one of these stronger than the other? Is it like the self-sufficiency, feed-yourself, locavore idea stronger than the more global veganistic uh, animal rights worldview. I, I that's my main 
my main thought is which one is stronger, which one is more prevailing, and is there any way to know if if there is? Well, um, when we talk about the issue of use of living things to provide for human beings, the kind of hunting that you and I are familiar with, the recreational hunter in Canada, the United States, Europe, other parts of the world, is of course a component of that. And in our cultures in North America, certainly quite significant. You know, we have millions of people who participate, tens and tens of millions more with whom that wild food is shared and so on and so forth. It is no small item. But when you put it in the context of, say, something like world fisheries, you know, which feed two billion people a year and employ hundreds of millions of people, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, our recreational hunting in that sense as a food provisioning system from a global perspective is relatively small. But I raise the point, uh, you know, because sometimes this worldview is dichotomized between those who sort of recreationally hunt and use animals that way and individuals who have a different perspective and feel that animals should never be taken and harvested for, for, for that reason. And we forget the fact that in this modern world, still in this 21st century, billions of people, billions of people across all spectrums of society and all countries are totally reliant on the pursuit, capture, killing, butchering, and consumption of sentient living creatures. Fish alone, as I said, is a classic example. So this, this worldview of uh, let's become vegan versus let's continue to use uh, animals is much wider, of course, than a comparison between recreational hunting and that. That's, that's the first point I would make. And very often, people who are involved in the debate on the, on the recreational hunting side or the hunting side uh, itself forget the fact that we, in fact, in that activity, are linked with massive global uh, undertakings that are absolutely essential right now and for the foreseeable future and the sustenance of human society. Um, however, there are alternative views, uh, or alternate views, and one of those is begins with animal rights views in the extreme, and then goes to ideas, you know, that we should all be turned vegan and, and so forth. But of course, there is the question of how do we all become vegan, Ben? Where does all that habitat come from? Yeah. What is the cost of turning the seven and a half billion of us on this planet to total to, to veganism entirely? How much wildlife habitat has to be taken to produce all of that food? What will be the implications for species loss? I'm not saying I have the answers to all of those questions, but I'm saying they're profound questions that need answering before we can see, you know, where the world ought to go. Now, what will be stronger? Well, I think what will be stronger depends on where you live. I think in some societies, uh, you know, this will push people or encourage people to become much more self-sufficient in their harvest of living things hopefully in a sustainable, respectful manner. In other cases, it will cause people to say, no, if I have been thinking about veganism, maybe now is the time for me to move further in that kind of a direction. Of course, I don't think the two worlds are completely separated, are they? 
I mean, I think you probably eat cucumbers or potatoes or lettuce periodically. I mean, I don't think you've taken them completely off your list, you know. I enjoy them, yes, I do. <laughs> and, many people, and many people who eat, uh, you know, don't want to see animals harvested, of course, end up eating a great many animals that are harvested, whether it's shrimp or codfish or salmon or tuna fish or, or whatever else it might be. So, I mean, I don't think one is stronger or weaker than the other uh, as a result of COVID. I think the interest in them are being heightened as a result of this. Where the world will head with respect to all of this, Ben, is a profound question. Yes. And in between the worlds of veganism and individuals and organizations who are opposed to hunting and the world of people who are actively engaged in hunting, there is a massive in-between world of people who consume across the ecological spectrum, but who are also becoming, in increasing numbers, concerned for the future of wildlife and animals. That is overall a very good thing. But some of those people will drift more towards a protectionist side, and some of those people will drift more towards a sustainable use side. But all of them will be part of shifting our relationship with animals. Let no one be misguided about that. A fundamental shift, independent of COVID, is taking place in human society with respect to our attitudes towards animals, how we perceive them, how we represent them, how closely we see them resembling ourselves or vice versa. That's all real, and that's all pre-COVID. The interesting thing in that debate is how will this experience, the COVID experience, I mean, influence that trend that has been already occurring? Yeah, that's that's the kind of where I was going with that. Like these polls, the vegan poll and the, the hunter or wild caught food poll within the discussion, you know, which one has a stronger, you know, is, is a stronger magnetic pool, right? If there are polarities or different ends of the magnet, like which which one's going to attract more people based on changes here. But I think the question I, I was thinking of as you were making this, those last comments was how much, you know, we talk about the, our, how we value animals and kind of the value system that we've built. And we'll talk about your wonderful book with, with Val Geist on the North American model here in, in a little bit, but how we've built structure and then also value around wild animals and domestic. How much do you think within this spectrum are these value systems influenced by economics? As in, the more comfortable you are, the more, uh, let's say, first world you are, the more comfortable economically you are, the more you have time to think of this larger value. If you are, um, I know you spend a lot of time thinking about it in Africa, uh, in some of the poorer communities, there's a different value system struggle going on. And so within the conversation before and after COVID, how do you see that economic piece of the puzzle uh, impacting the value systems. It's clear from human history that um, depending on how distant you can be from nature directly, uh, that can provide you with the freedom and the time to reflect on larger questions, whether they are questions of human freedom and justice or whether they are questions of our relationship with nature. Um, it is a 
the fact, whether people find it regrettable or otherwise, that uh, it has often been people who have been privileged or in privileged circumstances. They've been well off, you know, their food supplies have been secure, they've lived in nice homes and so on, who have reflected about these larger ideas. The North American wildlife conservation approach itself, it was not really born in the rural communities of a place like Newf the island of Newfoundland. It was born out of the reflections primarily, not exclusively, but primarily of, very, of, of the blue bloods of America, the Roosevelt's, etc. Um, so I think there is a direct tie between, first of all, just conjecturing about these things. If you're living in a rural community in Africa or in the Canadian Arctic or wherever it might be, and your day-by-day -day sustenance depends on you going out and taking the lives of other animals in order to feed yourself and your family, and you have absolutely no other alternative, well, you probably don't reflect too much on all of the deep philosophical questions that, that might attend. Uh, you have much more basic questions to answer. So I do think there is a relationship between wealth, security, uh, and the inclination and capacity to reflect on these larger questions. And that can and has, I think, in many cases, set up dichotomous views of the world, where it is very interesting that often those of us, and I include both you and I in this, who are privileged in, in this world, uh, many of us can develop attitudes which we think are correct and that we, for some reason, feel can be applied to people elsewhere. So in the extreme circumstance, you can have somebody very well off living in a major city in Canada or the United States who, if a cockroach invades their home, immediately scramble for the phone book or their dial on their phone to see who the local exterminator is and call them to get over to their domicile immediately because they cannot live with this one insect. But they are quite prepared to argue that African lions and leopards and elephants and so forth uh, should be completely tolerated, loved, accepted, I mean, viewed as iconic by people who every day may be eaten, killed and eaten by those animals, or who may suffer the complete loss of their crop as a result of a marauding elephant, for example. So there's no question that there is, a, there is some relationship here. But I don't think we should go so far, of course, as to say, and I know you're not saying this, but, we, but some people sort of set it up very clearly. There clearly are many people of means who are deeply concerned about the lives of people who are not as fortunate, who invest tremendous amounts of their time and money and, and, and freedom in in working on behalf of things that don't necessarily benefit themselves but benefit other people in the world. And these are the, these are the great people of the world, the people who do these kinds of things. Uh, and we have a lot of them. Your country has a great many of them. And I think it's a fantastic thing. Um, so I don't feel that just because, you know, the world has gotten wealthier or more people live above the poverty line or something like that, that that means ultimately we're going to have a complete overwhelming anti-use view of the world, for example, or protectionist view. But I do think that as wealth increases and as our systems of providing for ourselves distance us more and more 
from nature in a practical, direct way, then I think you are bound to see a significant shift in the average kind of thinking, you know, where society sits with respect to these questions. And I think is, that is the reason why we're seeing this rise in empathy for wildlife today. Yeah. Yeah, we t- I had a, a vegan ethicist or vegan philosopher um, named Dr. Robert C. Jones on a few weeks back, and we talked about bargains um, in terms of food consumption. You know, we're all making a bargain no matter what we do. I, I gave him the example of, hey, listen, we were talking about suffering in this case, you know, the, the undue suffering of sentient beings is kind of his animal rights philosophy. I don't want to, I understand that my actions will cause death, but I don't want to cause any unnecessary death or suffering if I don't have to. And my, the example I brought up for him in terms of bargaining was that I would love to grow tomatoes and other crops in my backyard, but I had a, a vole infestation that was making it hard to do that. And so I had to kind of make the bargain of, do I kill these voles, which allows me to grow these crops in my backyard and not get a proxy, you know, even a proxy local farmer who I don't know what his practices are to get to this end point. So now I have to make a bargain. My bargain is if I kill these voles, I know the result. If they all die, I know I get the tomatoes. If I let them live, I know I probably won't get as many tomatoes and then I've got to kind of outsource that death to someone else or, or, you know, approximately do that a lack of you know knowledge of, of of what the impact of that death is at least and i think that's for me the a question i'd love to hear you take on like is it just a series of bargains that we're making in consumption some of us are making the bargains more tangibly we know the result if i eat this this happens if i do this this happens others of us are you know making those bargains either in secret or just not acknowledging them as we make them. When I eat a hamburger, I don't, I don't think about the give and take. Um, and so I think that's maybe the ultimate question that I have is, is how do you see the, the idea of these bargains and, and how it moves through our own thinking through time? And, and also I think what you just said pertains to this, the, the economics of the situation, um, where you grew up, how you grew up, your traditions, your culture. I think all the things go into it, but um interested to hear your thoughts about, you know, bargaining death and suffering around consumption. I don't know if I would call it a bargain. Um, but from my view of human evolution and history and my view of the planet and the natural systems from which all of us draw life, I think it is inescapable that one way or another, our species, like all species, will take. We cannot live without food, we cannot live without air, we cannot live without all kinds of things. And there's only one ultimate source for all of this, it's called Earth. Some people talk about going to other places, but let me tell you, that's not going to help most of us. I don't see anything unnatural in the process of human beings taking from the natural world, and that includes the harvesting of other creatures. Any more than I see it unnatural for the leopard to do that, or for the wolf, or for the deer to to browse and graze what, what it takes. 
And to some extent, I find it increase, exceedingly unnatural as a philosophy to suggest that that is, in quotation marks, the role or position for humanity. And I believe that to adopt that role suggests that we are separate from nature, and I don't accept that. We not only are born through this exact same processes as other mammals, not only are we raised in exactly the same way, you know, fed at our mother's breast and so on and so forth, as all mammals are, but, you know, we live our lives based on the DNA and the architecture of what we have. We consume and burn food in the same way. We require certain nutrients to survive. And ultimately, we die and we decompose and we go back into the earth that ultimately was responsible for us. This is the journey that every human being is on, no matter what their philosophy or their creed or their skin color. Um, so I do think that as human beings, because we reflect beyond accepting that we will harvest wild things, which I believe in, um, and, and I do because I think it is ecologically sound and proportional, um, I do believe we have a, a responsibility to think about suffering and to think about death particularly death that we in selves, ourselves impose. I have long argued, for example, that um, the hunting community has uh, stood outside all of the discussions of animal welfare um, and failed in our responsibilities to talk about issues such as animal caring and animal welfare, and we should have been. I don't think it should have been those individuals, for example, who were opposed to all use of animals, who forced the world to develop more humane trapping methods. But that's the truth of the matter, isn't it? Mm. I think that, therefore, the only bargain that I sort of look at from my perspective is to know that when we go to harvest animals, we go to kill them, not to hurt them. And that may seem a ridiculous proposition and differentiation for someone who is completely opposed to the harvesting of wild things. But there's a reason why one should train to be capable of harvesting an animal quickly. There's a reason why one should know over what distances one is able to harvest an animal, for example, depending on the weaponry that it's used. And I do fundamentally believe that there are hunters who are concerned about these issues. And I believe there are hunters who are not concerned about these issues. And for me, um, my harvesting of animals works inside this man at the same time that I can openly say I am in love with them. And I have since a boy until the day I die, I will remain absolutely fascinated by them. This very day in the storm of wind that's taking place in rural Newfoundland, I was watching gannets, you know, dive into the high waves and taking food in the harbor next to where I live. Um, there were lots of people walking up and down the street, for example, uh, who never noticed those animals. Don't wonder about how do they see in these turbid waters? How do they, how do they know where there are little fish down there that they can miraculously find? But for me, it's a source of infinite interest and inspiration. 
And I know by watching them over decades that many of them have capacities we can only dream about. So there may be costs and benefits that we can talk about with respect to how we approach using the natural world to feed ourselves, whether the world would all become vegan, what would that look like? Versus a component of the world harvesting wild things, what does that look like? So we can look at it from the point of view of cost-benefit relationships, but I think ultimately in feeding ourselves, there is the question of what is the ecology of man? What is the ecology of humanism? What is the ecology of this species that should, for some reason, make it so remarkably different from the millions and millions and millions of other life forms that make their way? If we can strike a bargain, it might be to say that when we harvest wild things, we harvest them more humanely than most of them die in nature. And for those of us who have spent time studying nature as biologists or people who spend a lot of time in the outdoors, death in nature is never a retirement to a rocking chair on a porch. Animals that die in the wild die hard. So it is not a question that if we leave them, they will live forever lives without pain. And the idea that to leave them and therefore it will be more natural suggests indeed that we are presuming we are not part of nature. I find that philosophically inconsistent, and I don't, I don't agree with it. Yeah. I've, if I, as I've delved into and spoken to folks that I could find to be rational and, and, and a bit irrational in the, in the animal rights community, I've, I've only become more hardened in, my, in the idea that they are, are just patently wrong and that, that time will weaken their ideologies and... and philosophies within it when you were talking there I, I, something struck me a question i think um that you will will be able to answer and it's been a, a core of what i've been thinking of in terms of our own hunting community but then the folks within it and without um is hunting i'll just say it plainly is hunting selfish selfless or both all efforts to maintain our own lives are selfish. Evolution has provided each living thing, no matter what their level of intelligence or cognitive capacity, with a drive to live. And while the cricket or the gannet diving for fish or the whale eating shrimp uh, I don't think they think very much about whether they're being selfish or not, but they are driven to undertake this acquisition of things they need to survive. I think human beings have this buried in them no differently than any other species on the planet. Um, so I think um, in that, to that extent, yes, every undertaking in the acquisition of resources is selfish. I leave aside for the moment whether one thinks that is morally wrong or right, but evolutionarily there's no question that each animal, each organism, strives to live as long as possible. 
And we see this as lives come to an end. People struggle to stay alive for good reason. Um, I'm not sure what you would mean by selfless. In other words, are you trying to examine whether we do this only to benefit others? Do you mean it in that kind of an altruistic sense? Or what, what do you mean by selfless? Conservation. I think we, we often, I think some of folks that don't understand our, our worldview might say that as we present this selfless, this rather selfless idea that by killing one animal uh, and participating in you know, our model of conservation that we may, um, one, apply value to those animals, but also benefit the, the greater whole. So if I'm, you know, if I'm saying hunting, this is a very abstract way to, to put this, it's selfless in that way. Like there is a, a, great, a grander benefit to the, the, you know, the participation of what we might call a sport or pursuit, however you call it. And so selfless is maybe not the best, best term, but the idea of there's a, there's a larger benefit to, your, to that undertaking. Yes, I mean, I, in that sense, I totally agree. Uh, look, one of the things that the world is going to have to get over, if we're going to keep wildlife with us at all, they're going to have to get over the idea that there's only one way. There are many ways to conserve nature. We need protected areas in some instances. There's no question. We need dramatic intervention in some circumstances, like, for example, if we're losing the coral reefs, we need to do extraordinary things there. And that might mean displacing everybody, fishermen and everybody else who's out there to, 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 to sustain these incredible ecosystems. But we also need to have sustainable programs or sustainable approaches to the harvest of wildlife when billions of people in the world are engaged on it and dependent upon it. And I may not agree with all of those kinds of things in every particular instance, but we know that we need every possible mechanism in the short, the medium, and the long term if we are to have any chance of keeping wild others with us. In my lifetime, I have seen in the completely unindustrialized, very much still wild place where I live, I have seen massive losses of wildlife, of shorebirds, of passerines, of insects. I don't have the explanations for all of these patterns, but I do know that those patterns are real. And if someone comes to me tomorrow and says, Shane, you know, I can demonstrate to you that if half the communities in Newfoundland turn vegan, we would be able to enhance biodiversity in the long term. I'd say, I'm with you. If somebody comes to me and says, I believe that the harvesting of an elephant in an African country is beneficial because it provides money to communities, saves, helps uh, protect habitat, and, and uh, in this particular point in time, uh, enables us to, to sustain larger numbers and diversity of wildlife and so on and so forth, then I'm in favor of that. If someone comes to me and says, we need to shut down the cod fishery because if we don't do that, we're going to have nothing left and we're going to destroy an ecosystem, I'm in favor of that. The reason I call my organization Conservation Visions in the Poor is because anybody who tries to tell me 
that there is one vision and one mechanism only to keep wildlife with us is just is it's an imbecilic viewpoint. I'm sorry. Yeah. We need we need the views of indigenous peoples and rural peoples and and urbanites and philanthropists on every side of the divide, those who want to protect all wildlife and those who want to encourage sustainable use of wildlife. And we need to be picking out the very best of those ideas and applying them. And the world is a big place, Ben. It has vastly different circumstances for the wildlife and the people living in those places. There is absolutely no way to bring the Montana model to some place in Tanzania or to bring the Newfoundland concept of how we live with our massive seabird colonies and have always lived with them within within spitting distance of our coast we could have wiped them all out centuries ago yet we still have the the, the greatest concentration of seabird colonies in the northwest atlantic why is it because newfoundlanders didn't hunt they're maniacal hunters they're fanatical hunters but we didn't destroy those colonies i mean there's all kinds of examples to show where people can do these kinds of things and maintain diversity so for me you know this whole divide, it's inevitable that people take sides. It's part of who we are as human beings, it seems. But to me, when people start to reflect on it, to suggest that we don't need all these different approaches to conservation just does not make any sense. And I don't believe that, you know, every hunter that goes out there is thinking, as his primary motivation or her primary motivation. You know, this is a great thing I'm doing for humanity and for the entire wildlife troop that's out there. You know, there are, what's happening with the conservation model that we have erected in North America is that the selfish motivation of the individual can be turned to great good and benefit a majority. That's the small sparkle of genius in that approach. And it is no different in some ways than pointing out the fact that if you incentivize rural peoples, indigenous or otherwise, in other parts of the world to view wildlife as having value, that they will work then to keep that wildlife with them. That is a selfish response on their part. It benefits me, therefore I will keep it. But the benefit to the world could be the survival of lions in the wild or elephants. Yeah, I love I love the way you say that the, the benefits of the world because as I see as I've kind of really sat down and thought about again to return to the animal rights side, it it it's a selfless they believe, a selfless ideology, like a selfless worldview where they're giving up something in order to save something or end suffering or again as I said with some of the more cogent thinkers in that sect like end unnecessary suffering and so as as i go back to that that's a that's a very selfless idea but then compared to you know the villager in rural africa uh, doing a very a selfish thing right which is killing that elephant that's trampling their crops i think it returns to what we're we we're discussing earlier about the economics of it and how we can all kind of process it's where you are your relationship with wildlife on a on a micro level that affects your your benefit to the world as you just said you know how can you function within the greater world which which i think is um why i love talking with you about the north american model 
because it's so interesting on so many levels that it works at all is amazing, both on a legislative and governmental side, and that it's existed for as long as it has, and and maybe even more interesting. Do you think the North American model? Uh, I know you've thought about this. How would you how would you judge its ability to be transported to other other places, other countries, other nations, other societies. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think about this because, again, uh, you know, my life is directed towards trying to find things that work for wildlife. So when you find something, of course, you know, if you think it's good, then you, you naturally want to share it and you want to explain to people the benefits it has brought. But I don't think it's realistic to uh, hope that, or even strive for, why would we, uh, that we could take the North American model and simply transplant it to other parts of the world. But what we can do is to show how the North American model has worked and to show why it has worked. And why fundamentally it has worked is because we gave wildlife a value and we found a citizenry, and not just hunters, but a, a broader citizenry, that cared for it and largely came to care for it in the context of our United States-Canada partnership in the model, largely came to care for it as a symbol of their countries. That, that, that wild sheep on a mountaintop meant something to the country. That elk in alpine meadows meant something to a country. That, that, that wild runs of fish meant something. That, that, that pristine landscapes mean something. I mean, I think that uh, providing evidence to the world that where countries can develop a sense that their wildlife is part of their cultural legacy, part of their nationhood. I think where we can show evidence for that, it encourages other places in the world to do likewise and supports them in their choice of developing models that are based on those kinds of values. People in wildlife have to share and ultimately do share a common history and they also share a common destiny. Our fate is entwined. And so providing systems of valuation that lead to successful conservation, that is the critical thing we seek. They may be different in different parts of the world in how they are implemented and how they look, but ultimately that is what we are looking for. Uh, the systems that work and ultimately to understand the values that underlie those systems because it is the values, ultimately, that are responsible for the architecture and the sustainability of the conservation systems that are developed. Yeah. That's why I always return to, in my own personal examinations of this, is wildlife as a public trust is, is really the linchpin of the model. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's just something I've always returned to. Because that idea, this idea that if you own land, you don't own the animals that may travel on that land, on that earth. Um, the idea that we all are kind of contributing to this is really just, just like the underpinnings of the values that you're talking about, right? That is true for our system, Ben. Yeah. But then let's look at a system such as um, South Africa's, for example, where indisputably uh, it has been the private landowner model uh, that once turned to viewing wildlife uh, as the sort of engine of their prosperity and engine of their opportunity 
it was those private landowners and that private landowning system that led to the recovery of their wildlife there. Are you uh, is conservancy is conservancies kind of at the core of that? I just want to not sure. not in South Africa. In South Africa, it is in other African countries. Conservancies are in some cases, but in South Africa, it was purely private landowners uh, who made the switch from raising under what were marginal circumstances agricultural species or domestic species such as cattle and goats and sheep and moved into returning Africa's wildlife to these private lands which was essentially responsible for the recovery of wildlife there. And this is why I say what we share between that system and our system is that there was a value, an intrinsic value given and that the, the people saw a value in having wildlife on their land. Our system in North America, of course, is vastly different. While we do have private land examples of conservation, clearly, uh, the wildlife itself, as you point out, is a public trust resource, and people are not given ownership of those animals. But in South Africa, that's quite different. And yet, there was a choice in South Africa between a landscape devoid of African wildlife, all the iconic animals, and a land filled with domestic species, or a land that was filled with wildlife living in their natural habitats and providing incentives for people through economic return to keep wildlife with it. Now, if you're asking me which, which one I prefer, I come from Newfoundland. I prefer the public trust side of things. <laughs> you know, you're in Montana. You want, you, want, you want that system. It's totally understandable. And it's worked. So why would, we, why would we try to move towards privatization of wildlife in a system that has worked for 100 years? Yeah. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, Steve here. I want to talk about something crucial for any outdoor enthusiast, which is battery reliability. I've got interstate batteries powering my gear. I have interstate batteries in my camper. I run an interstate battery in my boats. I use interstate batteries because the last thing I want is to be left powerless. 
Interstate Batteries isn't just another battery company. They are outrageously dependable. In Alaska, the boat dealer that we use for getting stuff and repairs, he uses Interstate. Whether you're gearing up for hunting season, planning your next RV trip, or getting your boat ready, Interstate has the battery for all your needs. With over 150,000 dealer locations, the power you need is always nearby. Interstate batteries aren't just about power. It's about being prepared for any situation. Don't let a dead battery ruin your adventure. Head over to interstatebatteries.com, use their store locator, and equip yourself with a battery that won't let you down. When you're out in the wild or just on your daily commute, an interstate battery is your key to a dependable journey. We return to what your point earlier, which is very much that it depends on where you live and the circumstances and kind of the cultural, you know, touch points and the history of where where you come from as to how you can prescribe the best thing for wildlife, which is kind of the beauty and the struggle of conservation, I imagine, it uh, is. in and of itself and in, in many ways. Um, and as I, you know, I want to get to to the, the book and, and we talked about the THC book club and um, it's important to me to have your book with Val Geis, which is just simply entitled the, the North American model of wildlife conservation um, as the first book in, in this club that hopefully all our listeners will read together. Um, and, we'll, and we'll come back with you and, and hopefully we could uh, talk to Val Geist as well. But I, I th- often think about, you know, people, people have challenged and I know you're aware of this kind of like the structural points of the North American model and it, the timeliness of it, how it, how it'll continue into the future and that's okay we should definitely um we should definitely pressure test any system that we have um within conservation or any other part of our of our world but what what i try to explain to people and why i love it so much and why as i said earlier i've become a zealot of it in some strange way is because of the the things that are beneath the structure the tenets of the model which is what you've talked about so eloquently is the value systems and the reverence and all the things that are baked in. The fact that that came from the thinking minds of the elite and it has been transferred in a lot of ways to rural communities and and everybody in this country. And so that's why I love it so much. That's why I talk about it and, and, and instruct everyone that will talk to me to go and read about it and learn about it. Not only because of the way it's set up, but, but how it's lasted over time why these ideas have kind of transferred and lived and um, had the ability to cross generations of different thinkers and different places in, in, in our continent. So that's what I think of the beauty of it is, is that, does that reflect what you think or is there deeper, is it even, even deeper still than, than that point? Well, I don't know if it's deeper, but I mean, I think you, you, you raised some excellent points, man. I mean, when you consider that the transformations that have taken place in Canadian and American society, U.S. society, since, say, 1910, or since 1887, for example, when the Boone and Crocker Club was formed, or the turn of the century, the 20th century, when the Sierra Club was born, and you go on through, you know, the long periods of change, the First World War, the Second World War, the Depression, the, you know, I mean, all of the things that have happened, um, from a society that didn't really know what an airplane was to one that buzzes around and jets all over the world. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. I mean, there really have been uh, transformative changes that have taken place, and yet the basic approach and principles and value systems 
in the North American model have been maintained. Um, the miracle of the model, there, there are several. Uh, first of all, that it arose at all, because when it arose, uh, the idea that we should all just have free and open access to wildlife, kill as much as we want, make as much money as we possibly could from it, and so on. That was fully consistent with the American and, and settler view in both countries. I have come here to escape restrictions. I have come here to make my own way. Uh, my country even tells me that my independence and my, you know, my, my capacity to create wealth and so on and so forth is what actually makes me an American or a Canadian or whatever. And therefore, you know, I should have this drive to do these kinds of things. There were so many well-established industries that depended directly on this idea of the freewheeling sale and marketing of whether it was meat or feathers or skins or whatever it might have been. It wasn't as though, you know, a few, you know, well-dressed intellectuals out of uh, the American Northeast, you know, came down and sort of uh, uh, offered up something that was easy to accept. I mean, there was a lot of opposition to this. Uh, and there was a lot of fatalism uh, on the part of even the founders. They, 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 they did not know it would work brilliantly. Uh, they just uh, were determined to try something. I mean, the original ex exhibition of heads and horns that the Boone and Crockett Club assembled was to tell the people of the United States of America, come, come and look at what you're, you're going to lose it. This, this stuff is gone. You're not going to have it anymore. Uh, and yet they fought for what they believed was the only way to successfully bring that back, which was to basically tell everybody, none of you own it, except you all own it. And it was kind of a bizarre thing in a lot of ways. That's yeah, a hippie idea. <laughs> so yeah, you, yeah. You, I mean, you, you go from rugged individualism and manifest destiny, which is baked into, you know, yeah. Even even the forward thinkers who created this, like Roosevelt, those things were baked into their own lives, the way that they came to that point. And they so I yeah, I, I so imagine there's some like they're reversing their own thinking to come come to this in the face of great loss. Well, I think they did what all people who care about something deeply do. They are willing to challenge their own worldviews. And remember that the, the, the these blue bloods, uh like Roosevelt and Pinchot and so on, I mean you know, they never ever had to worry about their own personal hunting experiences or times afield. They were guaranteed to be able to enjoy them for the rest of their lives and probably their children and their grandchildren. Um, so th the second miracle uh, of the model was that, that they managed to convince the American people that this resource, these, these wild things, that these wild things were part of American legacy and inheritance, and that if you wanted to call yourself an American citizen or a Canadian, you would work to protect them. Now, so what they did as well, the second miracle, not only that they overcame the opposition and brought in a transformative narrative, they linked that narrative in a very unexpected way to the whole idea of nationhood. This was, this was the second act of genius in the model that that most people just, just forget about. I mean, they, they would say, we, we don't have the Louvre. We, we don't have the uh, amazing uh, monasteries or the amazing cathedrals and the amazing art galleries of Europe. What we have are these things. And we will protect them just as Europe has protected these legacies of art and literature and so on and so forth. That was the second act of genius. 
And the third act, well, there are many, but another act of genius, of course, was to find something that had value systems that could translate over multiple changes in society. You know, when Teddy Roosevelt left the White House, because, of course, conservation is very politicized all over the world. It's politicized in your country. It's politicized here in Canada. It's politicized everywhere. When Teddy Roosevelt left the White House, you know, there were a vast majority of people that were very happy to see him go. But we need to ask ourselves why, when he was so criticized by members of his own party and people in, an, in the other party for the things that he did, like his national forests and his national parks and all those kinds of things he did, we have to ask ourselves why, right up until this year of 2020, no president, no Congress has really, people have toyed with it and plucked at it and done various things, but no one has overturned those basic ideas. Now, why was that? It wasn't because they didn't want to politically lots of times. It's because somehow that value system got completely embedded, even in the American public that we think don't really care. But try and take it from them, and then see if they care. These are absolutely extraordinary things. Uh, and without those extraordinary things, I can assure you that you would not have the wildlife in your country that you have today, and neither would Canada. And you certainly wouldn't have the opportunities that you have in Montana to go harvest that wildlife to feed you and your family. Yeah, it might sound trite to explain it this way, but you know, as you said, your planes flying overhead, we're talking on microphones. Uh, you're in Newfoundland, I'm in Montana, and we're talking via microphones and headphones so we can see each other. You know, a hundred years ago, that would have been uh, <laughs> it would maybe not even a sci-fi movie, but the same ideas that were written down on parchment, and you know, like I said, it might sound trite to say they wrote it with a feather, but hey, whatever. That that has has somehow been transported to to this conversation. So like that is it's um it's an amazing idea um and an amazing set of principles to be malleable yet so stringent to to the generations and and the passage of time. So it's 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 great. And across the diversity of the countries been. I mean if you look at your country and you look at Canada and move from coast to coast and north to south there's an enormous cultural diversity, uh, you know, in the countries. Uh, value systems that, 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 you know, I mean, people in different regions of the country feel differently about different things, vehemently so. Uh, and yet, this basic approach has been carried out by every state and every province for a century. I mean, and then, of course, that approach, this is the other, one of the other acts of genius, was this early recognition of the need for international treaties. I mean, we talk about conventions on biodiversity and, and Brundtland reports and conventions on migratory species and things of this nature. My goodness, these are, these are, these are, these are juveniles now. We, we, we have a system uh, of, of treaties such as the Migratory Bird Convention and Act that, that's a uh, hundred years old. A hundred years ago, they were talking about the need to manage ducks flying back and forth between our two countries. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's unbelievable. 
uh, there was only a small population of, of, of white settlers living west of the Mississippi. Yeah, and here we are, <laughs> smack, here we are smacking duck stamps on our licenses. Like, that's how it is. That's how it yeah. has always been, you know. There, there really, has, uh, yeah. a lot of extraordinary things. I've always been astounded kind of the separation that we've allowed, you know, that, that somebody can buy a hunting regulations manual or booklet as whatever we'll call them each year and that there isn't some some treaty listed out that says, like, look at all the things that happened to get to this point. Like, you can't, don't don't turn your page and see how many turkeys you can kill in your region without first reading, without first understanding some perspective of how this came to be, however brief you could summarize it. I've always, always wondered about that and, and thought that that's some sort of mistake. So that... I, that 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 brings me to I think what I want to do, and I know we talked about this briefly. I've I've wanted to start a book club for some time. Many of of our guests, um, distinguished and maybe some not so distinguished, have books, um, and we all kind of read them together. But we never, uh, our listeners all read them together, but we never really put anything around it. I think it would only be right to start with your book with Doctor Valgeist, who's also been on the show, uh, the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation. Um, I'm going to ask for no other reason than I think, I know a lot of people are financially on hard times, but for no other reason than I think this is an inspirational work, not only the book, but just the idea that we've discussed here. Um, I'd I like to ask our listeners to, to read that book with me. I've already read it um, I'm at one and a half. I'm almost done my second read through it, but I will read it again with our listeners. So, so you'll have to go out and purchase it. Um, and, and, and Shane, you can tell us it's available everywhere books are sold, Amazon, different places, right? Yeah. I mean, it's published through Johns Hopkins University Press. So, I mean, that's the primary source, but I, I mean, anyone can get it from them kind of thing. Yeah, you know what I mean? For sure. So for it sure. is available. Um, yeah. one, one very interesting thing about this book too, which I think is somewhat, um, I don't know, controversial, but certainly topical and something that your listeners will want to weigh in on if they do read the book. Um, there, is a, there is a strong mention made in the book, in the opening chapter in particular, uh, about you know, what might be vacancies in the model or, or whatever, and I'm asked that question a lot. And um, I talk a little bit there in that first chapter about what we lost when we lost the Native American cultures and what we might have learned had those Native American cultures been left to thrive and been intact and so on because the history is what the history is but it shouldn't blind us to the fact that um, those nations of people uh, every single one of them had developed extraordinary capacities to live in nature all over the breadth of Canada and the United States, you know, hundreds of different languages and cultures that were absolutely amazing. And while we may, some of us, pride ourselves on being able hunters today, we might reflect back on what it was to be like as a hunter when you were tossing a stone-tipped arrow as your primary means of attaining your prey and so forth. And unfortunately, for political, cultural, social, ethnic reasons. Um, that is not part of the North American model. And in my view, it is undoubtedly the greatest vacancy we have. Yeah. 
I would agree. And it's often in, in modern times here with the ideas of social justice and some of the more progressive attacks on, you know, what America is, I guess, and our own history. I tend to just think of it this way, just like as you have said there, I mean, the, the North America model is this, this born from um, the idea that we needed to change and do it better and put some structure around wildlife and, and cohabitation and, and value. And so there is this history on the back end of that, you know, for the century prior to that, where we were building to that moment. Um, and a lot of things that weren't so good happened during during that century. Um, There's no we, question. Yeah. And we can only acknowledge it. It's not to say that America isn't a wonderful place to live in a great place and a, a product of many nuanced uh, happenings that both good and bad, shameful and and prideful. So, you know, I, I, I always want to preface those types of ideas with this. We're not here to set anything, but like, here's, here's history and here's what happened and here's how you can learn and move from. And I think what you just said is a good example of that. You know, this model that we're talking about, such a great long lasting thing, kind of what it's missing is, is some of the prior decades, um, that led to that, you know, it's void, it's void of it. So, um, it's a nice way to dichotomize and think of, of our history. And so that's, I appreciate it. I know you and I have long talked about putting something together on just native American wildlife conservation. And I, I still long to do that with you at some point in the future, but as long as you're okay with it, like I said, I'm not, uh, I just want to make it clear. I'm not profiting from this in any way. I don't want to, um, I want, I just believe in, in, you know, I, the book in general is is a is a vehicle for my belief in the model, um, and what we've already discussed. So I, I'm hoping that many readers can go out and buy that book and read it with us. Um, hopefully, Shane, you're you're okay with us coming back in, in roughly a month here, um, and and we will certainly try to track down Valgeist as well. Uh, coming back and having a, a recording where we just talk about the book, we'll go through it. Um, and we'll talk about how you came to, to want to put it together, how it was put together, and then and then the, the final result. And we'll ask our readers uh, and listeners both to to participate and ask some questions and, and write reviews of the book. And, and, and we'll really all, hopefully together, at least it'll feel like together, be able to examine the work and, and, and see where we land. You know, I'm absolutely delighted to do it, and I... Thank you for uh, for taking on this idea, not just about this particular book, but um, one of my goals over my career through speaking and writing a great deal uh, in both our countries has been to try to convince our community, uh, and by that community I mean anybody who cares about wildlife, including, of course, our community of hunters and anglers, to become more knowledgeable of their history and more knowledgeable of why they have the opportunities they do today. Uh, because if you don't know and understand what it took to get you here, you're in a much more precarious position. You can lose what you have or fail to understand how you can protect it if you don't understand the efforts that were made to set it up in the first place. You know, a movement is like a country. You keep it vibrant and, and working by what you invest in it, not by what you take from it. Yeah, yeah. Profoundly said, yeah. Uh, hopefully, everyone can take take the ideas we discuss, even in this time of COVID, and, and understand that 
you know, an examination of this model is kind of exactly that. We've all kind of reflected as we started off here. We talked about reflection. It's a good time to reflect on it. And if your value system includes hunting and going outside and loving wildlife, then you have, in my opinion, at least, you should really dive into this and reflect upon it so you can move forward. Um, Well, let's also hope too, Ben, that some people who uh, are not in favor of hunting and who are uh, uh, sort of not in line with the model's thinking also participate in this and offer us up some challenges that we can deal with. That's perfect. Yeah. I mean, the good thing for you listeners out there that I'm asking to, to purchase this book and get it shipped to your house and read it, that you'll share it with your family members that maybe aren't hunters, your wives, your husbands, your cousins, your friends, your neighbors, share it with them. Maybe not the book, but share the ideas, um, pass it around and bring to the discussion next time we join Shane, um, some really hard questions for us to, to, to dance around and, and try to answer. Um, think about it hard, come at us <laughs> or Shane looks ready. I'm ready. Um, to, to really tackle some tough questions and some tough lines of thinking and, and critical critical as they need to be. Um, I think it'll be fun. I look forward to it. We're going to do that with lots of books in the future, but Shane, I'm very glad to do it with, with your book um, up first. Well, uh, thank you very much. We're very proud, and I'm sure Dr. Geist will be uh, very eager to participate as well. He always is, and of course... Never forget that it was Valerius Geist who came up with that term in the first instance. That's not right, me. yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be calling him. Maybe he's over there on the opposite end of the continent <laughs> yes, from you yes. <laughs> on, a, on, a, on an island uh, as well. So um, maybe that's maybe that's a common thread that you guys both picked islands or both. Yeah, or, that's or, true. Or uh, that's where you are. So we'll get a hold of him, and hopefully he'll take part. I'm sure he'll, like you said, have a comment either way. And I look forward to to next time, Shane. I really appreciate everything, the thoughts. Uh, they're both inspiring, insightful, and, and thanks for taking the time to be part of this little program as many times as you have. Okay. Thanks very much, Ben. Good luck to All you. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Shane. Bye. You're welcome. That's it. That is all. Another episode in the books. Thanks to Miles Nolte. Thanks to Shane Mahoney. Thanks to you, Phil T. Engineer, for hanging in there with us. Uh, we had a lot of technical difficulties with Squadcast, not a sponsor, um, getting into the Shane Mahoney interview. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a nightmare. It was a goddamn like squad goddamn nightmare. Nightmare. It's a goddamn nightmare. <laughs> Squadcast, not a, not a fucking sponsor in this case. Uh, we, just to bring you behind the scenes a little bit, we had. Shane was having some problems with his computer, then his headphones, and then we got that going, and we finally uh, crested the the ridge to to really be where we could actually record. And then Squadcast wasn't recording Shane, and then we had to like restart to see if that would work. And then we restarted. Shane had to get up to go to the bathroom. He came back. His headphones didn't work, so we had to restart it again. And then like. Phil had to do some jerry-rigging magic on how we actually recorded the podcast. We recorded it in eight different programs at once. Phil, you want to try to help people oh, understand? Yeah, no, I had, yeah, I eventually had to take a laptop and have a series of wires connecting it to another computer that was recording in a different program. It was, uh, it was fun. It was, I mean, it was a learning experience and yeah. I, uh, I'll cherish it forever. It was also Mother's Day. 
And so Phil and I were, and I, you know, Shane were all away from our families, and just like we really had to do it on that day. So like the this the stress was there, but hopefully you just listened for a couple hours, and and um, our efforts were worth it. Thank you, Phil, for hanging in there with me during these these times. Of course. Uh, next episode, I'm back in the studio, <laughs> talking wow. to a very. Uh, it's a, I feel like a very important podcast. We we teased it last week, so I apologize that we pushed it back. But we pushed back a guy named Brett Bond, whose father Glenn was attacked by a bear on the Denali Road up there in Alaska um, in 2016. You've probably all we mentioned it last week again. I apologize that we pushed it a week. You've probably seen the images of of Glenn Bond. His face is ripped off, basically. Um, there's video of him talking without a face. The the images in the video are as, as gruesome as you could imagine. And um, they were all over the internet. And they sparked what amounts to, over a 40-year span, an urban legend. They were attributed to a lot of different places, a lot of different people, a lot of different things. Until Brett Bond came forward with what we believe is the true story of those images and how they came to be. It's an amazing story that includes Brett uh, heroically saving his father by shooting a bear while it was attacking him, driving 25 miles on a snow machine back to safety, Glenn Bond refusing any blood transfusions, any pain medications during the ordeal, and uh, medical incarceration is a part of this. The, the, really, the story of this family is intertwined with the story of the spare attack. So next week, you're going to hear all about it. I am very excited for it. I think it's one of the best things we've done. Sam Lundgren, who you've heard on the show, Joe Farinato, who you've certainly heard on the show, helped me with the research. And um, we've uncovered a lot of really amazing parts of this story. So we can't wait to share it with you next week here on the show. Phil, uh, are you ready? Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard, um, a lot of it and it's, it's crazy. It's wild. Yeah. Are you, do you want to kind of like hype people up for this? Like from what you've heard, is it, uh, the crazy spare attack story? Does it make you cringe? Where where are we at here, buddy? I mean, we've, we've, I've heard a lot in the past year of my life just, uh, by, you know, proximity to all of you people, (laughs) you insane people. (laughs) Um, and this is definitely the most, like just the, most adrenaline pumping, like horrifying one, I'd say, out of have all. You seen of them. the photos? I uh, no, I have not. I have not Whoa. brought myself to look at them. <laughs> Whoa, okay. Well, I yeah. mean, that's what sparked this whole thing. They, the, you know, mm-hmm. that of themselves. You know how like a controversy becomes more controversial if it has video evidence. This is just one of those things. You know, it, it's something to hear about a bear attack, but to see some of the imagery from the attack is just. It's mind blowing that that Glenn Bond and Brett are, are alive and telling the story to us and walking us through it. So, um, not only are we recounting a bear attack here, but we did we spent lots of hours investigating it and and looking into the truth and and really because it became an urban legend and there was so much untruth around it over the years, we wanted to kind of set the record straight. Do that with Brett. We we find him to be a very credible and to be telling the truth. So, uh, I'm very excited for that next week. Here on the Hunting Collective, so stick and stay with us. We look forward to uh, a cringeworthy but important episode 126, right, Phil? Yes, that is correct. 
damn right. We'll see you then. Bye. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.